Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I've got a question for you. In what way are humans most like cats? Ooh, I don't know, Joe. In what way are humans most like cats? Well, I'll answer the riddle myself then since you I forced me. I thought it was me. a joke. No, it's not a joke. Oh. It's, no, it's that both actually love packaging material of like gifts and packages more than what's inside it. Because with the cats, <laughs> you know, it, like if you ever had a cat on Christmas Day when presents are being opened, of course you have. Uh, the, I don't know if this is your experience. In my experience, they always want to get in the wrapping paper and, and oh. go to war with oh, it. Oh, yeah. Uh, but with us humans, it's not the wrapping paper. It's that darn bubble wrap. That stuff is so intoxicating, the tactile pleasure of it, the gentle popping sounds. It's like it's a drug from another universe. <laughs> well, um, uh, first of all, uh, on, on the cat issue, yes, I, I can definitely testify that cats love packaging material. Uh, they also really love, or at least my cat really loves, uh, instruction manuals for the assembly of furniture. Hmm. Um, like Ikea manuals? Yeah, yeah okay. any kind of like Ikea manual or like a Lego uh, instruction book. When you start, when you pull everything out of the box, that's right where she goes. If you have like the most comfortable couch in the world and then there is a, an, an Ikea instruction manual somewhere on that couch, mm-hmm. it's the, the instruction manual that she will lay on. <laughs> well, I wonder if that's part of the larger trend of cats always wanting to be between you and what you're doing mm-hmm. and how they don't want your attention until you're really trying to focus on something else and then they need to get on top of that thing and in your face. <laughs> Possibly. And, of course, they love boxes and, and all, I understand, because they are um, – you know they're they're both predator and prey, mm-hmm. and uh, and so they you know they want little places to hide out in, to hide from uh, predators, but also you know places of ambush for the things that they would be hunting. Do you have this memory when you were a little kid of like the the, the early early years of playing with bubble wrap and just the intense fixation with popping every single bubble on the sheet? Yeah, I mean, I don't remember necessarily like the feeling like I had to pop every bubble, but I remember like this vague sense of um, almost disappointment at having uh, completely popped all of the bubbles and there mm-hmm. being something like fresh and exciting about a, a complete uh, unpopped sheet of bubble wrap. Uh, so, yeah, I have some fond memories of it. And uh, as, you know, as, as a former child, but also as the parent of a current child, mm-hmm. uh, especially when he was younger, you know, he, you know, we would, we'd get some bubble wrap, you give him some bubble wrap and just, and just tell him, here, go for it. And he would you know, have fun popping it. Um, it's better than any $20 toy. It's, yeah. Yeah. Of course, as, as we'll discuss, we see less full-on bubble wrap these days. Yeah. Uh, we see an, an, another type of, uh, of packing material that is uh, plastic uh, inflated with air. We still get a decent amount of bubble wrap here in the office because we often get books delivered to us in the office in those bubble wrap lined envelopes. Oh, yeah, I guess we do, um, which is always kind of silly because I don't – especially if it's a, you know, a review copy of a book. <laughs> Somebody broke my book. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't mind if it gets beat up a little bit. I mean especially since outside of work, when I order a book for myself, I always order like the, the – whatever the cheapest used copy is. So, mm-hmm. you know, I get something in that has like a weird odor to it and coffee yeah. stains. I love, a, an, yeah, I love it when, when a book has been uh, – you know, the various package, passages are underlined and highlighted and little notes added and summaries. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I really don't care if it is uh, you know if 
that is com- you know completely uh, protected from the you know the the, the physical uh, uh, dangers of transit, but. Uh, but yeah, we still we still get a lot of of bubble wrap like material. In fact, we get so much that it can be a little you know over, you know overbearing at times. Yeah, um, I feel like like once a week uh, I have I'm like a you know a, an executioner in my house, mm-hmm. uh, going around to the various inflatable bits and just stabbing them all to uh, get the air out so I can stuff the plastic in the, in the recycling. And then uh, a similar case with freezer bags for uh, for um, a food that is shipped. You know, mm-hmm. having to to gut those and get all of the the the, um, the the unfrozen material out of there, so I can stuff those plastic bags into the recycling. I totally know what you're saying. My childhood fascination with and love of bubble wrap has in many ways been replaced by an adult guilt complex about packaging materials. Yeah. I feel like, oh, this probably isn't good for the planet. I've gotten too much stuff shipped to my house, and and I don't know what to do about it now. It's here. I guess I just got to pop this and. Try to recycle it if I can. Yeah. So on today's episode, as as you can can tell, we're going to discuss bubble wrap. And uh, before you turn off and say like I don't uh, you know that sounds dreary, uh, no no it actually has a surprising origin story which we'll get into, and we'll discuss what came before bubble wrap and and where we've gone uh, where we're going post bubble wrap and what that uh, sort of future holds for us. All right. Well, maybe we should go straight to the origin story. Yeah, and this is a more recent invention, so this is not going to be one where you know the the, the inventors are lost to the, the myths of prehistory. No, we know their names. So the story of bubble wrap begins in the 1950s with a pair of business partners. Now, these were an American inventor named Alfred W. Fielding and a Swiss chemist named Mark Chavon. Now, Fielding and Chavon were playing around with an idea for an innovation in interior decorating, not in packaging material, Mm -hmm. not in uh, childhood uh, entertainment, but in interior decor. They wanted to explore new frontiers in wallpaper. (laughs) Now, wallpaper has gone in and out of style over the course of the 20th century and actually has gone in and out of style, I guess, before then. Is it in right now? I feel like it's a little bit in. I, I didn't know. I feel like these days the, the modern sensibility tends to be more sort of like solid painted muter color walls. Mm. But I don't know. Uh, maybe it's coming back. I don't know that much about interior design. I feel like I, I, I've been encountering it more like when, when I go to say like a new restaurant or mm-hmm. something, you know, where there's clearly been a lot of recent energy put into the decor. Mm-hmm. I, the, I will sometimes find wallpaper mm. and I'll think, oh, my goodness, this is, is this a sign of things to come. I don't know. Well, it used to be more of a sign of luxury in interior decorating. Uh, but then it became cheaper and more popular in the 20th century, appearing in more and more homes. I don't know if it's coming back. And if it is coming back, I wonder what that says. But anyway, in 1957, these two guys, uh, Fielding and Siobhan, were trying to see if they could make a new kind of weird, artsy, 3D-textured wallpaper out of sheets of plastic layered over paper backing. (laughs) And so modern accounts of their efforts, including uh, an article I was reading by David Kindy and Smithsonian about this uh, invention, but a bunch of other things, they all identify the beat generation as the target market of this wallpaper. (laughs) And I don't know if that goes back to something that Fielding and Siobhan themselves said at some point, but it gets repeated a lot. I'm trying to imagine exactly what that means from like a mass market consumer style point of view. Obviously, they weren't just trying to sell this to Allen Ginsberg and his friends. Yeah, because when you think Allen Ginsberg, you think bubble wrap. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe, because 
So I would say for some reason we today tend to think of the 1950s as an extremely square time in the history of like American arts and culture. But in reality, it it seems to me like it was exactly the opposite. Mid-century architecture and design, like the late 40s through the early 60s, really seems to me to be absolutely crammed with bizarre experimental styles that would be far too weird for most new businesses or homeowners today. Uh, And so that's sort of the landscape I'm imagining. Like I'm wondering if – this experimental textured wallpaper might have fit in with elements of the mid-century futurist architectural style known as googie, which if you're trying to picture that, think like uh, classic architecture and designs in Las Vegas that you can still see on some of their signs, right? Right. The the, the famous Welcome to Fabulous Las Vegas sign mm-hmm. uh, is a prime example of Googie. And by the way, Googie is spelled G-O-O-G-I-E, mm-hmm. a, a word that uh, that pretty much any search engine will try to insist uh, does not exist. <laughs> They're like, you mean Google, right? right no, yeah. I mean Googie. Uh, and this is Googie. So, yeah, th- this is probably the, the most readily uh, you know, available example of Googie that's just going to be in your mind right now. If you play video games, there's a bunch of Googie uh, design that shows up in the Fallout games. Oh, absolutely. Because they're going for that 1950s retro-futurist style. There, there are other sort of names for related or overlapping mid-century styles like mid-century modern, which is, I think, broader than Googie, uh, or what is sometimes apparently now called Raygun Gothic. I think that's a coinage by William Gibson. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I think it is important to, to – this is actually something that I always have to continually remind myself, that the the creative minds of the 1950s, the 1940s, and, and other decades as well, for the most part, were just as, as weird and as inventive, if not more so, than anybody working today. Uh, you know, some of my favorite uh, artists that I've discovered, uh, such as uh, Irving Norman, mm-hmm. was a you know, surrealist uh, – uh, dark surrealist uh, painter, uh, and he was active. He would have been active at, the, at this time in the 1950s. And you look at his work now, and it looks it's it's difficult. It's uh, you know it's 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 weird and dark and uh, and and and, and you know, undercutting in a way that you might not expect from the 1950s if you're just picturing like you know the sort of the atomic family uh, scenario. The atomic family, the nuclear family, the nuclear the, family the atom- yeah. it's the same thing. Right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you made me think of Fallout, so I'm thinking about you know the, the, the more about atomics, I guess. Uh-huh. But, uh, but but yeah. also like there's there are all these other strange styles that are flourishing at the period, like uh, like the tiki aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. This definitely lines up with the same era. Uh, so for those of you who are not aware, mid-century tiki was a post-World War II aesthetic fad. That most memorably gave us tiki drinks, uh, but also an entire aesthetic vibe that's firmly rooted in the uh, cultural appropriation of Polynesian culture. The drinks themselves, however, as tiki drink master Beach Bumberry points out in his excellent book, Potions of the Caribbean, uh, these drinks are firmly products of the Caribbean and Caribbean products, particularly rum, while the design is assembled from pilfered bits of Polynesian aesthetics. Now, now I'm a, a big fan of tiki drinks myself. I think they're fun to make, fun to drink uh, and share. And then uh, the history of, of each individual cocktail tends to be interesting with its sort of, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're the stories of like feuding bartenders mm-hmm. uh, in the, the 50s and 60s, etc. Um, but just as the products that make up a tiki drink are problematic in their roots in Western exploitation of the Caribbean, so too is the style rooted in the exploitation of Polynesian peoples. So – uh, you know, I'm not trying to ruin tiki for anyone, but I'm just saying imbibe with a shot of self-reflection. 
Uh, and by the way, I'd love to actually cover Tiki in more detail on another episode. Perhaps we could do an episode on uh, like the invention of the Mai Tai. Really? Yeah. It has an interesting history. Okay. Yeah. Trade secrets, warring uh, tiki bartenders. Uh, yeah, there's a whole world there. Uh, and, of course, uh, again, uh, Beach Bum Barry is a wonderful authority on all of these. Uh, I highly recommend his books. Interesting. Well, maybe we could come back. Uh, but so thinking about wallpaper specifically, I mean, connecting it back to the to the tiki aesthetic, I, I was looking at a blog post by a writer named Catherine Brooks that was collecting wallpapers throughout history. And she mm-hmm. had a couple of examples of wallpapers selected from the 1950s. And they are very strange. One has this complex design with a kind of green and black tropical garden motif. It mm-hmm. seems to be evoking sort of a, like, a, like a tiki fascination. It's got palm trees and yeah. stuff. But then another one of these wallpapers is just one that shows pine sprigs, and it's apparently embossed. It has some kind of 3D texture. So maybe 3D textured wallpapers were already sort of a thing in the 1950s. But to come back to our inventors, Fielding and Siobhan, they they were working out of a garage in Hawthorne, New Jersey in 1957 to come up specifically with a heat-based sealing process to press together two layers of plastic shower curtain with paper backing. And unfortunately, the final product they came up with did not have the aesthetic properties they were looking for in a wallpaper. The hot lamination of the flexible plastic ended up trapping air bubbles between the layers, which doesn't sound like a great texture for wallpaper, or maybe it does. I I don't know exactly what it was they were trying to do, but poppable walls sounds bad. Well, I mean, it's not great, but it's not <laughs> horrifying. I mean, it does make me think of the the walls in Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, you know, where you had the uh, the, the flavored um, uh, illustrations on the wallpaper. I don't remember this part. Oh, you don't? Yeah, the like, flavored walls? Yeah, it was like lickable walls. Nice. Yeah. The, the, what, the snoresberries taste like snoresberries or whatever? <laughs> um, so snoresberries, right? The snoresberries, yeah. Okay. So you could imagine like snoresberry bubble wrap walls where you could go up and you pop this uh, – this this pimple on the wall, okay. and, it, and it emits this uh, this f- this smell, this odor, if not this taste mm-hmm. of whatever uh, you know the, the uh, you know the sweet happens to be. Oh, okay. So it's like perfume sample walls. It's yeah. like a poppable or scratch off kind of uh, uh, mechanics, but for your house. Yeah. No, we're not saying that's what Fielding and Siobhan had in mind. I, I don't know exactly what they were thinking, but they, they wanted to create this beet wallpaper, <laughs> and they did get patents for their process. But the wallpaper did not really catch on. And uh, Howard Fielding, the son of Alfred Fielding, was a young kid when his father brought home a sample of uh, – one. at some point they had this invention that was the layers of plastic with bubbles in it. And speaking to David Kendi of Smithsonian Magazine, uh, Howard Fielding recalls this sort of psychotactile tractor beam allure of the plastic bubbles when he first saw them. He says, I remember looking at the stuff and my instinct was to squeeze it. I say I'm the first person to pop bubble wrap, but I'm not sure that's true. The adults at my father's firm likely did so for quality assurance. (laughs) Uh, But I was probably the first kid. They were really fun to pop. The bubbles were a lot bigger then, so they made a loud noise. And I think it's always interesting when – the extent to which the people associated with a product or a company actually talk about or promote its sort of off-label use. Like mm-hmm. this whole thing about the people who make Q-tips, 
they probably know that people are sticking those in their ears all the time, but they don't talk about that because you're not supposed to do that. Yes, with you're, them. you're you're requested not to stick them in your ears. But who actually thinks that's not going on? I mean, nobody. Right. I mean, they have other uses to be sure. I, you know, they can be used in makeup, and mm-hmm. um, and I use them sometimes when I'm uh, uh, working on painting miniatures and and all. But that kind of code of silence is not going on with <laughs> bubble wrap. In fact. I notice that whenever there are interviews with people involved with the company that still makes bubble wrap or, you know, the Sealed Air Corporation, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, or people who were uh, involved in the invention of bubble wrap, always talk about the popping. They're like – it's like they they admit, I like to pop the bubbles too. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that is. It it seems to be – almost part of their marketing. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I, this is not the reasoning, but you can, you could you could look at it like, well, you're when you pop all the, the bubbles in a piece of bubble wrap, you render it useless, mm-hmm. thus requiring the, um, uh, the purchase of additional bubble wrapping for any packaging you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Yeah, make a, make a product that the children will destroy. Well, maybe we should take a break, and then when we come back, we can explore what happened with this failed wallpaper with the bubbles in it. All right, we're back. We've been discussing uh, the history of wallpaper, or what initially comes right before wallpaper in this quest to create this ideal beat generation wallpaper that has uh, air bubbles in it. What comes before wallpaper? Or did you mean bubble wrap? Well, what comes before bubble wrap? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess in a sense it would have been like what would have be, what would have come after. Like this was going to be the next evolutionary step for wallpaper. Okay, yeah. And instead it becomes the birth of something new. This was going to be the wallpaper you put on the side walls of your like moon igloo or whatever. Yeah. But no, uh, it, it didn't work out. It was not successful. It didn't prove to be a popular product. I don't know if they ever sold any of it. Uh, so the lamination process was not successful at making a desirable wallpaper. But they did get patents for their process. And they tried to see if their system of making bubbly sealed layers of plastic could be used for other stuff. Well, my mind instantly turns to fashion. Didn't uh, Barbarella wear some – one of her outfits didn't have like air bubbles in it? Oh, she might have worn – I don't quite remember, but that mm-hmm. would seem to be – yeah, that would make sense. Uh, I know there was at least – I kept reading references to there was one Playboy cover at some point that had a uh, an actress or model dressed in bubble wrap. Yeah. Uh, so clearly there was some kind of alternative fashion uses for it. Uh, But one thing that they tried to do when they were marketing it was as insulation. They tried to – so Fielding and Siobhan tried to market it as insulation material for greenhouses. This Hmm. failed to attract much interest. Apparently, it just wasn't great at insulating. Um, But Fielding and Siobhan did not give up in trying to find a use for their plastic product. And I think it's interesting that here's an example of the kind of like supply side drive in in find in innovation, right? Where they're like, we've got this process, we've got this invention, but we don't know what it does yet. It's the opposite of the idea that necessity is the mother of invention, right? right? Um, so they're like, we know how to make this stuff, but we don't know if it can do anything useful. And they're trying to find a use for it. So uh, they didn't give up and they continued making business moves to support the development of this product in the the following years. So in 1960, they founded a company called the Sealed Air Corporation, which still exists. And it was this year in 1960 – that Mark Chavon had his breakthrough insight about a new use for the textured wallpaper. And this is as told in a 2010 New York Times City Room piece by James Barron. Apparently, Chavon 
was on a small propeller plane flying from Ohio to Newark, New Jersey. And the story is that Siobhan was watching out the window as the plane was coming in toward New Jersey, and he saw clouds. And in that moment, in his mind, the clouds seemed to be cushioning the plane's controlled descent through the atmosphere. It was a soft cushion of gas. And according to a manager with the Sealed Air Corporation named Ron Schellenberger, this was how Siobhan realized that bubbly plastic could be useful for its cushioning properties during the shipping of products. The lift under the airplane was, quote, like bouncing across the bubbles. Okay, I'll allow it. I'm always a little uh, suspicious of uh, uh, idea origin stories oh, that right, depend yeah. upon uh, you know these eureka moments of observation. Not to say it doesn't happen, but sometimes it is used to, uh, I think, to just add a, an artificial sense of myth and mystery. Sure. Well, as I said, this is the story they tell. Mm-hmm. It's hard to know if that was really what was going through his mind rather than uh, you know somebody sitting in the seat next to him was like, hey, you should use that bubble wrap to, <laughs> to ship products. So they branded their air-filled plastic sheeting as bubble wrap, which is still a company trademark today. But it's one of those things like Kleenex for tissue paper or Popsicle for quiescently frozen treats. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's one of those brand terms that's just sort of become a worldwide generic term against its will. Uh, Technically, some of the stuff we call bubble wrap is air-cushioned packaging material made by other companies. I was reading a 2006 article in Forbes by Monty Burke that reported that counterfeit bubble wrap, I guess being sold under the trade name but allegedly manufactured in China, had been found in a Home Depot in California. (laughs) Counterfeit bubble wrap. Like, why would you go to the trouble? This does bring to mind, uh, you know, we were joking earlier about – Pitching a, a horror story, a horror a franchise about uh, about bubble wrap. Mm-hmm. That this is the angle you could take: illicit bubble wrap that right. is created by another manufacturer, and the bubbles I don't know contain uh, some sort of you know terrible gas that drives people crazy or something. It's bubble wrap from the Todash darkness. Or yeah, something. there you go. See, it basically writes itself. <laughs> uh, so, how did it go? From failed kitschy wallpaper and failed insulation to cushioning material for packaging even after they had this idea. Well, according to company history, this was mostly due to a relationship with a single very important customer that Sealed Air acquired in the early 1960s and that was IBM. Oh. So in 1959, IBM introduced an extremely successful line of early computers used by businesses and institutions around the world. This was the IBM 1400 series. The first major model uh, in which was the 1401. It was a variable word length decimal computer that some sources now refer to as like the Model T of computers because of its early widespread use, mostly for data processing by businesses. Obviously, this was before the home computer era. And the story goes that a marketer named Frederick W. Bowers saw potential here, and he pitched IBM on the advantages of bubble wrap as a cushioned packing material for the fragile, expensive computers and computer parts it was now shipping to businesses and institutions around the world. And the pitch worked. IBM became bubble wrap's first major client. uh, And then over the following years, bubble wrap became a standard cushioning material to protect delicate stuff in transit, and the company flourished. So we often like to ask on the show what came before. This is one where it's not a super complicated answer. Before bubble wrap, the most commonly used packing material to cushion stuff was was stuff like wadded up newspaper. Mm -hmm. This had the advantage, of course, of being cheap or essentially free if you use the newspapers people threw away. But it came with multiple disadvantages. First of all, it was not actually very good at cushioning stuff, especially, you know, a newspaper can be compressed. So if you're shipping something that's both heavy and delicate, it 
can kind of compress the newspaper until it's sort of flattened it and now it doesn't provide much cushioning. Right. I mean, when you and, – and I've – tried to cushion things with uh, with newspapers before. And, and it really becomes this whole task of like, oh, I can't, you know, you obviously just can't throw a newspaper in there. Mm-hmm. You have to take each individual page and you have to wad it up, but don't wad it up too much. Mm-hmm. Find that like optimal level of wadding where it's nice and springy and keep doing that, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, however long it takes. You know, obviously, if you if you spend the money on some sort of a, a manufactured packaging material, you mm-hmm. can certainly cut down on your time, especially if instead of packaging like the odd box of valuables for your you know once in a decade move, right. instead you're p- packaging objects every day, some sort of product to send out to consumers. Uh-huh. And another big problem with wadded up newspaper is that it ends up smearing ink everywhere. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. So now, it, one of the huge advantages though of newspaper packaging is um, – I don't know if you've experienced this, but if you order something, particularly if you order something like via eBay, sometimes you get uh, you know, foreign newspapers in there and that, oh. can, that can become like a fun bonus. I, uh, a few years back, I ordered some miniatures uh, to paint and they came from somewhere in Russia. So uh, it was packaged. Uh, the little figurines were, uh, were cushioned by these wadded up newspapers and when you, uh, you unwadded them, you saw all the, you know, the Cyrillic uh, on the page. It, was, it made for a fun experience. Interesting. Yeah. Bubble wrap, it's, you know, you, I guess you could pop it and be like, hmm, is this, where is this air from? Is this air from New Jersey? <laughs> but it's just not the same. Uh, well, so ultimately, air-filled plastic did prove superior at resisting compression and at protecting fragile objects from impacts. And over the years, the Sealed Air Corporation has done some interesting, like, marketing stunts to show off the superior protective capabilities of bubble wrap over competing materials. One example is that uh, this was reported in that Forbes piece I was talking about. In the year 2000, they entered this big public pumpkin dropping contest in Iowa. And I'm like, what is that? I guess the goal is to keep a falling pumpkin from being smashed when it hits the ground. I couldn't find a lot on this, but it looks like there are engineering departments at some universities that have similar contests. Where oh, yeah, and, and high schools as well, uh, yeah. sometimes with eggs are mm-hmm. popular. Yeah, throwing some eggs or throwing some melons off the roof, and it becomes a science project to figure out the best way to cushion it and protect right. it from uh, injury. To, like, make a protective container or a protective landing zone or something with within certain design constraints. Yeah, it's a pretty great uh, engineering project for kids because it involves, like, doing something totally against the rules, uh-huh. throwing stuff off the roof of the school right. with, like, just a, a fun engineering challenge. How do you keep the inevitable from happening? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, so I'm all in favor of it. Well, the story here is that the engineers from Sealed Air did a demonstration where they dropped an (laughs) 815-pound pumpkin named Gordzilla from a height of 35 feet cushioned only by bubble wrap. CEO William Hickey told Forbes, quote, The pumpkin survived the drop. The problem was that it bounced. And then there's no more information. I'm like, what is that? What is that problem then? Did it bounce and land on somebody's car? Did yeah. it bounce and turn it? Did it come to life? I know. I was looking around too because, I mean, just the mention of Gordzilla, I had to, to find more uh-huh. and I wasn't able to find anything. Now, granted, this is like nearly two decades ago and I know that maybe the videotaping of everything wasn't quite as ubiquitous, but it seems like if they were going to the trouble to drop. 815-pound Godzilla off of a roof, uh, they would have filmed it and that that footage would be proudly displayed somewhere unless indeed something really terrible happened, like it killed somebody or came to life. Uh Uh-huh. 
Well, I, I, I'm going to feel extremely betrayed if I find out that former Sealed Air CEO William Hickey is making up details of the story. I, I demand proof of Godzilla. <laughs> is what, that's what I am demanding. Are they a publicly traded company? I, I think they are, okay, yeah. Okay, I think the, the stockholders should demand uh, proof of Godzilla on Show the next uh, us phone the call. documents. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so the company still makes bubble wrap. Though bubble wrap represents only a small part of its revenue now. I've seen estimates maybe around 10% or 15%, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, that's what I've seen. They've transitioned largely to food packaging, actually. They own the Cryovac brand, so there's a lot of food packaging. But there have been interesting developments. It's not just like, okay, we figured out how to make bubble wrap and then they just coasted on that forever. One example of developments in the history of bubble wrap is for example, the uh, the former CEO of Sealed Air, William Hickey, who we just mentioned, he told Forbes in 2006 that Alfred W. Fielding always wanted to be able to create a way to put air into the bubble when you needed it instead of when it was manufactured, right? So that like you could ship out flat bubble wrap and then it could be inflated on site. Now, why would that be important? Well, think about like volume and density in shipping. Imagine you run a factory that ships out delicate products and you need to use air cushioning material to pack it. How do you get the material? Well, if it's getting shipped to you in trucks or something, the space in the truck is going to be mostly taken up by bubbles of air. It's not very efficient. But by the 21st century, uh, uh, Fielding's dream of on-site inflatable bubble wrap was actually achieved. The Sealed Air Corporation originally called this stuff New Air IB, uh, and it is apparently much more space-saving than the original. According to that 2006 article, one truckload of the uh, inflatable bubble wrap is the same as 40 truckloads of the already inflated bubbles. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. I've also seen this referred to as fill air products. Yeah. Yeah. But when you start thinking about this, about like the the quantities and the efficiency, you do start to see the downsides of all this packaging material, right? There was a claim in that 2006 Forbes article that the company, uh, they insisted that at the time they produced enough bubble wrap every year to circle the earth at its equator 10 times. They do not say at what width, though. That seems important information. <laughs> like one bubble's width? And yeah. then is it at the big bubble, the fat bubble, or the, the little teeny bubble? I don't know. I mean, I'd guess it's probably at whatever their most common width of, of material is. Mm-hmm. But no matter what width it is, that's a lot of plastic. Yeah, it is a lot of plastic. And that that, that continues to be one of the... The major concerns, I guess, uh, with with uh, with, pla- with bubble wrap, but also these other like fill air products. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the articles I was looking at was um, uh, an article that was uh, published in the Atlantic by Bori Lam. That's L A M, mm-hmm. uh, titled "About Those Air Cushions in Amazon Packages Everywhere," and this was from 2016. And in this article, Lam discusses how the colossal growth of e-commerce has indeed benefited the packing material industry. As of 2016, it was a $5.6 billion industry. Wow. And uh, Sealed Air is the biggest market shareholder. Uh, and uh, and uh, at this time, there said, uh, she said that bubble wrap itself was only 15% of the business with more of an emphasis being placed on the fill air products, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, like you'll find in Amazon packages, uh, most of your Amazon packages that you're receiving today. So like one big bubble in, in a piece of plastic. Well, or it's like – it's or it's kind of like uh, it, it's like the the paper towel roll equivalent, right? Yes. Where it's like each segment has clearly been inflated and it's minimal plastic. Uh, this is the stuff that after you order anything, you find yourself ritually stabbing all right. of the air bladders so that you can recycle the material. Yeah. So um, the plastic sacrifice. Yeah, the plastic sacrifice. 
so Lamb says that uh, the fill air products like this are very popular for several reasons. First of all, economically, it's a cheap way to package goods, both in terms of material and shipping weight, and the machines that inflate the material, uh, and the, again, on site, such as at the shipping uh, facility. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- this, these machines don't take up that much room in the facility. Uh, so that's, that's another huge advantage. And as far as the environment goes, uh, it is preferred over styrofoam, and the plastic is at least recyclable. Does it get recycled very often, that's, though? That's part of the problem. So, like, in my house, when we do it, like, first of all, I have to ritually sacrifice all of the, the air bladders, yeah. which takes a little time, but okay, I do it. And then once you get them uh, sacrificed, you can't put them in with your – or at least we can't put them in with our normal curbside re- recycling. Mm-hmm. Instead, we have to put it in a separate container and then I have to take that container periodically to the trunk of my car. Mm-hmm. And then once my trunk of my – once the trunk of my car is completely filled with plastic bags, mm-hmm. then I remind myself, oh, I need to go to the grocery store and go to their their area where they will take um, plastic bags uh, for recycling. And so, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a big uh, thing, right? It's not as easy to recycle it. A lot of people are probably just throwing these in the garbage mm-hmm. or they're throwing them maybe into their curbside recycling, which, of course, is just going to end up in the garbage that way as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, the average person is just swamped with so much of it, it becomes a personal hassle, plus a growing reminder of just how much plastic waste, to say nothing of cardboard waste, we're producing and demanding all for the convenience of e-commerce. Now, Lamb in this article does point out that, you know, we do, there are studies that back up the idea that you're still depending on less energy in, in many cases when you're, when you're doing e-commerce versus going to a traditional brick and mortar uh, store uh, because, you know, ultimately the supply chain exists no matter what the shape of the supply chain. I mean, you're still dealing with goods that are produced somewhere that have to be shipped somewhere else and right. then shipped to another location. So, you know, it, when you start doing the math on all of that, it becomes a, a bit complicated. Yeah. But that being said, uh, just on a personal level, yeah, when, when you start accumulating a lot of plastic, a lot of cardboard, it, you begin to ask questions. You begin to, to wonder, like, is this sustainable? Is this, is this – am, am I making good choices and are, and are we making good choices uh, as a culture uh, if this is the kind of waste we're producing? Well, I know that what I'm about to say is absolutely a secondary concern to the just massive use of it, whether it's necessary mm-hmm. or not. But I, w- I noticed that, like we were saying, I think a lot of times there are plastic-filled air products that are in uh, packages I receive that don't seem necessary. Right. You know, I'll get a package that's a cardboard box that has inside it something that just really doesn't seem very fragile or breakable and there's filled air plastic inside it. Well, part of that is that there are standard box sizes. Uh And, you know, whatever you have ordered generally has to go in a standard size box. Mm -hmm. And if there is space in that box, that space needs to be filled. They would prefer to fill that with more merchandise, obviously. But if there's not not additional merchandise, that means there's going to have to be additional uh, padding via these uh, inflatable air blasts. Matters, hmm. uh, because also they don't want – otherwise your item is knocking around in there, which might be fine, but it also might uh, cause the object to be damaged uh, in some either legitimate or at least perceived manner, at which point you would then return it, which of course costs the, 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 uh, the company money. So you know, it becomes a situation where for them the most reasonable thing to do is to inflate some air bladders, shove them in there, and then send you your comic book. 
Yeah, maybe it's cheaper to fill 100 air bladders than it is to have one customer return a product. Yeah, it pro- I mean, I don't, you know, I don't have the math on that in front of me, but it's probably something along those lines. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if sometimes people, uh, I guess this is probably less the case now because you've got the big, you know, single single chamber bladder. But I wonder if there were times when people used to order cheap products just because they wanted to get the bubble wrap to pop it. Because you can't go to the store and buy bubble wrap, can you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can. Wait, you can? You can go like to a UPS store it? and you can buy bubble wrap. I imagine you can <sighs> buy bubble wrap at some of the larger stores as well. I'm not saying I've done this, by the way, but I am shocked that you can buy bubble wrap at the store. I've yeah. never heard of this. Yeah, go for it. It's out there. I mean, you can even buy, I mean, I imagine you can go to crafting stores too and get some because you have the, the colorful bubble wrap as well. Hmm. Yeah. You blew my mind. <laughs> All right, maybe we should take a break, and then when we come back, we can talk briefly about bubble wrap psychology. All right, we're back. This episode of Invention is about bubble wrap. We've discussed where it came from, its origins as a as the future of wallpaper. Uh, and we've discussed you know, our, our current uh, situation with bubble wrap and other types of uh, uh, cushioning materials in, uh, you know, g- given our craze for e-commerce. But now we're coming back to a more you know, visceral relationship that we have with bubble wrap, and that is the popping of bubble wrap and why it is so satisfying. Why is almost everyone drawn to it? Mm-hmm. That's a strange thing to have a like near universal psychological drive for. Yeah, you don't encounter people, or at least I have not encountered anyone who hates it. Have you ever heard of anyone who who like has a, a phobia of bubble wrap? I mean, I don't maybe know. they there don't are people like... with balloon phobias. Yeah, yeah, there are. Yeah. So, I mean, it, there's probably someone, but you don't hear about people hating bubble wrap. The, the really the most negative thing that could be said about the experience of bubble wrap mm-hmm. is that you give a child some bubble wrap and they can make some shockingly loud and uh, uh, you know unexpected noises that may startle you. Well, I have read cases where police were called or say a military base was shut down or something because sounds of bubble wrap were popping were mistaken for gunfire. Oh, I could see yeah where that could be the case. Yeah. Because it is a, it is a you know, like a popping you know the popping cracking sound can uh, can be confusing. There's actually been a little bit of research on the psychological effects of popping bubble wrap. It doesn't look like we're going to get anything super solid or earth shattering, but there have been a couple of studies. So in 1992, a researcher named Kathleen Dillon published in the journal Psychological Reports a study called "Popping Sealed Air Capsules to Reduce Stress." This was a small sample of 30 undergraduates participated in this study to find out whether popping plastic air capsules like bubble wrap would relieve stress. And the study found that after a session of popping bubbles, quote, subjects reported feeling significantly more energized, less tired, and more calm. And according to Dylan, quote, some advantages to this technique over existing ones include that this technique involves minimum ability, essentially no training or practice, and little likelihood of paradoxical anxiety effects that have been shown to accompany meditative relaxation techniques in some subjects. Hmm. I hope this the comparative advantage of therapeutic bubble popping. Versus just, say, traditional meditate meditation. Yeah. Like the idea being, I guess, that if you're trying to meditate, your mind might be distracted by all the things you're trying to get away from via meditation, mm-hmm. and therefore the experience could be frustrating and anxiety-inducing. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas bubble wrap is going to, like, pretty much nail it every time. It's Yeah, it's, it's a sure thing. But I would say the same thing might be 
true of just like playing Tetris or something. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I could having covered Tetris, we did two episodes of it for mm-hmm. Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and we really went deep on the psychological effects of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could see some sort of, uh, you know, there are some obvious parallels. Well, I would say part of the appeal of a good video game controller, like the A B buttons on a Game Boy mm-hmm. that people used to play Tetris on, uh, it, it, a controller really needs to have the right button feel. Yeah, and the right kind of button feel is kind of similar to the feeling of a sealed air capsule on bubble wrap. Huh, that's a good point. But while I've seen quite a few articles reference this study by Dylan in 92, I've seen fewer reference this one from 1994 by uh, Taylor, Purser, and Bollock called Could Popping Air Capsules Affect State Anxiety in Psychological Reports? They looked into whether bubble popping has an effect on test subjects uh, on their level of state anxiety. And the subjects, again, were university students. And the test group popped air capsules for five minutes. Control group did nothing. Afterwards, the test group actually showed higher levels of anxiety than the control group, which was the opposite of the expected effect. Uh, So I I would not try to conclude anything with high confidence about the psychological effects (laughs) of bubble popping from just these two studies. But just the fact that the studies exist, I think, demonstrates that some th- people have the intuition that something's going on here. There is something psychologically significant about the bubble popping activity and why people are so drawn to it. I don't have any strong evidence to support this. This is just a sort of hunch of mine. But I have a hunch that the bubble popping drive might be rooted in an instinct for grooming behaviors mm. like you know picking lice and other bugs the kind of, or like pimple popping the kind of like small intense finger you know fingertip pressure application kinds of things that would come along with social grooming behaviors in primates this is a great point. Yeah, I've, I've thought about this a fair amount with, with, in regards to, to pimples and boils because mm-hmm. if, if you look around on YouTube, and I suggest you do, you'll find that there are quite a few videos of people um, you know, grooming themselves. I think there's even like a reality show that came out of this like mm-hmm. Pimple Popper MD or something like that, Dr. Pimple Popper oh, or something. Oh, boy. I have not watched it, but I know that it exists. But all of this like – tends to show that, like it or not, we have this fascination with the, the, the popping of, um, of, of, of boils and pimples. And, mm. uh, and, and, and we all know that you're, you're not supposed to really do that. You know, we're not supposed to just go and uh, start squeezing every odd mark on our face or, uh, you know, if we, we get a boil, you know, or, or not so much a boil, but say a blister, you're not supposed to mess with it like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, for a variety of reasons. And yet we have this impulse to do so. And I wonder mm-hmm. yeah, if it is tied in with this um, this desire for personal grooming but even social grooming. I, yeah. I, mean, I, have, I have heard, you know, anecdotal reports of in, say, locker room environments where there will be like a communal experience of dealing with someone's pimples, uh, like, like back uh, acne Ugh. or something. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is what comes of following um, uh, reports of, of the pro wrestling world. But um, <laughs> but uh, in another area that I was thinking about this too is uh, is when it comes to another stress relief de- uh, device, that mm-hmm. being um, some sort of a squeezable object. Mm-hmm. Like right now, I, I tend to have a, a squeezable object uh, – uh, stress relief uh, squeezy uh, in my hand when we're recording. Yeah. Not so much that, you know, because I'm like racked with anxiety during a recording session, but because like my hands need to be doing something. And if I'm not squeezing this ball, then I'm going to be messing around with my pen and dropping it and making a noise while if I drop this, 
it makes basically no sound. Mm-hmm. Well, but but I wonder fidgeting with fingers thing in general. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, but it makes me wonder if this too has a com- like some root in our experience of the flesh. Mm-hmm. You know, like the I, it is soothing to to squeeze this uh, fleshy ball because it is like squeezing flesh. Yeah, that's. That's as far as I've come. I actually looked into – I tried to find some studies on this a while back thinking we could do an episode of one of our shows on uh, squeeze balls. And I really couldn't – I found some stuff that was specialized towards um, uh, you know, the treatment of certain, uh, like certain conditions mm-hmm. but nothing like general about like the human experience of needing to, uh, you know, to manipulate a fleshy ball in your hand. Well, I mean, another thing I would say is that the tradition of things like fidget spinners is not new. All mm-hmm. kinds of cultures have small handheld objects that are carried as uh, – carried or, or, you know, just like messed around with during rituals or even when you're not doing anything else. Maybe you just walk around with little stones in your hands. This is not a, a culturally uncommon thing. What are these things for? What, yeah. is, what is the rosary for? Where does that come from? Well, you know, I mean, part is, of it is you said, what are these for? Think of the hands. What are these hands for? Like uh-huh. you look at human evolution and and the, the, the reason we have this shape here that we have, the reason we have this, this ultimately like less than healthy posture of uh, standing upright is so that we could use these hands for things. Mm-hmm. And then you enter a modern uh, life experience of not having things to do with your hands. Like that uh, – it's, it's no wonder that that would be a little perplexing, that you would need to have something in your fingers because we just went through this tremendous evolutionary process to be able to use these hands while we're doing other things. Yeah, within our evolutionary history is standing there not using your hands for anything. Is that kind of like standing on one foot? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it just naturally kind of puts you off balance a little bit. Yeah, you're really insulting the gods, right? <laughs> uh, or at least insulting the evolutionary process if you're not using your hands for something at all times. At least talk with them. At least yeah. uh, make wild gestures. At least make yourself crazy gloves with fidget spinners at each fingertip. <laughs> Ten spinners. That's my new band. Ten spinners. Okay. I could see that working. I really is this is one area where I really wish we had some more solid science on this. I, I couldn't you know, I couldn't find anything else really on the bubble popping drive. And maybe there's some studies out there that I wasn't able to locate. If so, if you're you know, experienced in this area, please contact us with these. I, I would like some something with more meat on it. Well, maybe when we do an inv- an invention episode on the blackhead remover, <laughs> then we can uh, like the blackhead gun. Then we can uh, we can get into this more. Okay, I don't know if I want to find out what that is. <laughs> My understanding, it's like a little device for like sucking, um, um, you know, the, the like the the darkened uh, you know material out of your pores. Amazing. Yeah. Okay, that's got to be it for There's today. There's a Simpsons joke about it, right? <laughs> I mean, where they... Uh, I don't know. I think Aunt Selma has one. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're done. That's the end. <laughs> All right. Well, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Invention, you can find them at inventionpod.com. That is our homepage. Uh, of course, you can find uh, the show just about anywhere else. Uh, there's a whole, uh, you know, jungle of, uh, of podcast aggregators and uh, websites. And, uh, you know, if you use those, great. Uh, have fun with them. Uh, but if they have, you have the opportunity to subscribe to our show, do that. That really helps us out. And if you have the ability to leave us some stars, a nice review, uh, whatever the model happens to be, uh, do that because that also helps us out as well. 
Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Maya Cole and Seth Nicholas Johnson. If, if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 